All right. Good evening, everyone. Nice sunny day here in Seattle. But welcome. Welcome to anyone who might be joining us new tonight. All right. So tonight, uh, exploring an aspect of the Dharma called the five aggregates. This is really exploring this issue or this question of, of self and, and non-self, which is such a central part of the Buddhist teaching. It's really shown up in the second noble truth as the, the origination of dukkha, origination of suffering. This, this projection onto the moment of that central piece of self. So this mechanism of self and the release of that self, the Buddha spoke about in many different ways and all through the suttas. He talked about it from the five aggregates, dependent origination, the six sense spaces, even instructions around metta was still part of that process of how do you see the self? How do you release that self? So I thought tonight we'll explore these five aggregates, right? So this is kind of a technical uh, way of exploring the Dharma, but I want to try to make it as, as down close to home as possible. Because as we explore it, we can sometimes get too much caught in our head as we look at it, the idea, the conceptual part. And really, the Buddha was pointing toward how can we see that directly in our own experience? How can I actually see, okay, there's the self arising, and more importantly, there's the release of that So it's meant to not be stuck in a conceptual piece, but actually go into the very fabric of our, our beings, of our life. There's a couple of suttas I'm going to use, but not really using the suttas as quotes, but just as their, their guidepost. <clears throat> One is called the Foam Sutta. And this is where the Buddha looks at different, the five aggregates and has these beautiful analogies to point toward their inherent emptiness. The other one is the discourse on non-self. And that's considered to be the second sutta, the second talk, really, the Buddha ever gave. And I think that's significant. Now, like most of us, Today, the Buddha was talking to people who had this underlying belief in that sense of self, that sense of me, that sense of identity. And when we, because the normal way of thinking about self, it doesn't really make any sense, the absence of it. And of course, there's a sense of me who's talking, there's a sense of you who's listening, there's a me who had dinner, the me who did the dishes, the me who drove here. There's a sense of, of history, the sense of activity that we seem to be the central player in that, the central role in all of that. This is an assumption of that sense of self. And so it seems very pervasive and very intact. We can look in our past history, you know, what we did yesterday, what we did last year, 10 years ago. There's a sense of me who is experiencing, projecting to the future how, you know, what I expect the future might hold for me. Even right now in this moment, this is probably the moment, this is the point of uh, power in our practice is how this moment is. There's still the sense of me who's hearing, the sense of me who's speaking, listening, tasting, smelling, thinking, all those six senses. So really, what was the Buddha talking about? This, this central part of his teaching of non-self, of not-self, sometimes called anatta or anatta. Now you can reflect for a moment. I think we've all had this experience many times in our life. And we had some idea, something we thought was really true, 
and later on turned not out to not be true. It could have been a, a belief. It could have been a concept about ourselves or someone else. Remember, a simple example is when my daughter was born, we didn't, we didn't know the gender before the birth. And we kind of had this sense that she was going to be a boy. So we were kind of oriented that way. We had a whole list of boy names. And then, surprise, you know, it's not a boy. I was actually secretly hoping for a girl. <laughs> but it was interesting to see, okay, that reality falls away. And this is what happens in these, these beliefs that we hold that we, when we finally see, okay, that's no longer true. Something falls away in us. It could be all the stuff we've used to kind of build up that belief, all the ways we've defended it, all the ways we've kind of elaborated on it. All that falls away or starts to dissolve. We have to make a course correction. But when we think it's true, thinking back to those those times, we really are believing it's true and we act as if it's true. And that very acting as true tends to make it have a certain power, a certain relative truth to it. We orient the world around that belief. We orient ourselves around that. And this is very true when we start to see through this illusion of self. We see that, wow, that my whole world has really been oriented around this essential premise of I, me, and mine. So this sense of self is ultimately just something that we have believed in. And through that belief, we create this perspective, how this assumption of how we see the world, this underlying assumption of how we see the world. We act as if it's true. We suffer as if it's true. And we're very invested and defended around that belief. So the Buddha saw all this. This is how our minds are today. The people he was talking to back then had that same, those same beliefs, that same assumption of self. So how did he guide people through seeing that to, to actually see the, the illusion of self? Because we had that, we had that same basic misconception, misperception that he was talking to back then. So these two suttas are really about learning to see more clearly, to see through their assumptions, to perceive accurately how things are. This assumption of self, he says, let's look a little closer at that. Let's see if that's as true as we think it is. And the way we do this, this is what I talked about two weeks ago. These underlying, uh, really, things in our practice are so supportive is mindfulness, investigation. So mindfulness is that capacity to see clearly. Investigation is that direction, like directed, looking to see where suffering is, where the sense of self is, is a wonderful thing to investigate. And then surrendering, letting go of, based on the truth of what we see, the truth of that perception. So these aggregates, these are, there are five aggregates of this form, sense of of body, all kind of material form. There's the Vedana or feeling tone, that sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then there's perception, the way we see things and fix it in our memory, how we, okay, I remember that kind of a, a chair. I know what to do with that kind of thing. I sit on it. There's a, uh, sankaras or volitional impulses. This is what we do. This is how we create 
our emotions, our thoughts, our beliefs, and all our actions based on them. And finally, consciousness, the way very kind of room or this kind of feel that we perceive from. So these five aspects are really the basic building blocks we use to create that sense of self. So the Buddha would look at the aggregates. He would look at them in different ways, like the dependent origination, working at the, the quality of consciousness, but all ways to kind of investigate this sense of me, this sense of self. When we extrapolate from that, the sense of I, me, and mine. That's the bottom line. So anytime there's a sense of I, me, and mine, we're basically caught, we're acting from a way that creates suffering. Right? So it's not about throwing out the utility of all this, but just seeing through them as, as something that arises and passes away. So let's dive into these. The first one, form. First aggregate. So we can think of form as everything that's kind of solid in the in the world. We can look at our bodies, we can look at other people's bodies, we can look at like this bell, this chair, this desk, this building, trees, everything has that's that's solid has a sense of form. Now the Buddha talked about these aggregates as clinging our aggregates. So clinging, when you hear that word. That's really pointing toward this whole mechanism of self, creating a sense of self around. And he said, okay, that's actually optional. That's actually not necessary. In fact, not only is it not necessary, it's how you create a lot of suffering. And so let's look at this, this solidity of form. So we look at something and how do we, like a chair here, how do we create a sense of self from that? You know, let's look at our bodies. You know, we look at our bodies and say, okay, that's that's who I am. That's where I am. We recognize ourselves in photographs, in video, images. We point to ourselves, here I am. This is where I am. This is your body. That's I can recognize that's that's my mother, that's my father, that's my daughter, my wife, my partner, whoever it might be. So as part of that echolocation I explored last year is that we see something and from that scene, we kind of use that bounce back to create that sense of me, that sense of self, that sense of I. But the, the trick is that very solidity of self that we're, of thing we're seeing in form, the very solidity is actually a result of us creating from that sense of self. So let's take this a little from an abstract, just a little abstract into something more concrete. Seeing this for ourselves right now as you're listening. So just get a sense of your body. Get a sense of your body here. From the quality of opinions, the perspective of opinions. So this part is too large, this part's too small, too tall, too short, too this way, do that way. You can do this with something like your hand. Like even just look at your hand right now as you're listening. And notice all the opinions and ideas, thoughts, judgments, comparison that arise from that. The parts you like, the part you dislike. Okay, so the idea of being your hand is really obvious from this perspective of thought and idea. That's the key piece. From our idea, thought, belief, I is right there. Now close your eyes and sense into this hand. Sense into what's actually here. 
to the direct sensations present in the hands, letting all the thoughts, the ideas, the concepts start to fade into the background. Even the idea of my hand. As you do this, you might find, if you look closely, it's actually a lot harder to say, to hold on to the idea of this being mine or me. Because you're going through the direct experience. Because even the shape of the hand is kind of amorphous. Like sometimes the palm is more awake. Sometimes a thumb, sometimes a particular finger. Imagine if I gave you an assignment to draw a hand. If you had never seen a hand before, you had no idea what a hand was. And you couldn't use your eyes to look at your hand. You couldn't use your other hand to feel it. You just have to go into the direct sensation of this hand. What would you draw? How would you draw a representation of this kind of morphing, changing, flexing sensations we call the hand? How would you draw that? How would you describe that? This starts to give us a taste of what form is like when we release our thoughts around. So you, of course, recognize this is the basic meditation instructions. Don't think about the breath. Feel the breath. Feel the sensations in the body. Not the intellectual part, the mind of it, but actually the direct experience of it. So right from the beginning of instructions, we're already working at taking apart this first aggregate, aggregate of the form, taking apart the assumptions of self around it. So it points to how the, the hand, something like form, can actually be experienced as being empty. It's like a shift of perception, a shift of perspective. I can view it from a sense of I, of me, or I can view it from a place not of the I, of me, of something that's arising and passing away. That's not, not of me. It's much harder to claim that as I, and me, and mine. So it's not about throwing out the utility or the functionality of our ideas, our opinions, all our training, all our experience. But realizing there's a deeper reality that's also present, a reality that we can start to sense more and more and even become our baseline for how we live in the world. And we pick up those ideas, those concepts when they're needed, but then we can let them go easily. If it's not the right concept, we can switch to a different concept. So that sense of you in relationship to something like form, like the hand, it's when our ideas are there, it's intact. When our ideas are not there, it's much less amorphous. This is really a simple exercise that if we take it in a very deep way, points to where the Dharma's point. Everything we take as being I, me, and mine, if we look more and more closely, we see it's actually not, it's, we can't claim I. So the Buddha used this analogy of, of foam. So a foam, like if you've ever been to the seashore or even seeing a river after it's been raining a lot, foam kind of gets accumulates. You know, it's kind of this white, fluffy mass. And from a distance, it looks kind of solid. It looks like it's substantial. But actually go and touch it, it's like, it's very flimsy. The wind can just blow it this way and that way. So the Buddha said that form is like that foam. 
that foam is like form. That we can think it's solid, but we actually look closely, it's not. The other discourse the Buddha was speaking of, really giving a series of questions, asking the audience to answer these questions, to truly inquire for their own right here and now, is this true or not? So one of the questions was around the nature of of control, of functionality. You know, can I change the shape of my hand? Can I change? Of course, we can close our hand and all that, but the actual physical structure, can I change it by just wanting it to be changed? Can I change the color? Can I change the size of it? Okay, can anyone do that? Right? If you can't do that, it's kind of pointing toward perhaps that's not where you reside. Okay, we have this assumption that self can kind of control things, can change things. Another analogy, another set of questions is around the, the never changing nature of self. So the question is, is are something like our hand really who we are? Is our body who we are? Now, has anyone noticed any change in your hand since you were a young child? You know, since you started working? When you retire, when you look at your hands and you realize, oh, there, I can't deny the fact that there's change here. The hand I have right now is not going to be the hand I'm going to have in five years, even two years, even a week. Thing, you get blisters, you get cuts, you get scars. You know, things are always in flux. And so the Buddha asked, if something isn't changing in, in flux, is that inherently satisfactory? Does it actually give you lasting Satisfaction. The answer was no, because I can't rest my myself on that. If it's changing, is that really what you care can call yourself? Because we have this assumption the self is unchanging; it's always here. Okay, we've already looked at this hand as this kind of placeholder for all form. You can see how it's always changing, always in flux. If we lost our hand, would we still exist? There still be the sense of me here. So it's interesting as we look at it this way, as the Buddha instructed us, we can see that, okay, obviously my hand is just something that belongs to my body, but it's not really who I am. Even my body, yeah, it belongs to me, but it's not where I reside. Okay, can anyone point to where their sense of self is in their body? I mean, sometimes it's interesting just to ask that question. Okay, you know, my body's hurting. Okay, where exactly is this I am talking about? Can I actually touch it? Can I actually point to that locus? Is it in my heart? Is it in my head? Sometimes it feels like it's in the head because there's all the mental contraction. Or if we released our contraction of mind, where is that sense of me, the sense of self? So the way we keep doing this is we don't look closely and also we have these other aggregates that we use to kind of create that sense of self. Our perception, our memories, our history, our emotions, our thoughts around things, our field of consciousness, our liking, our disliking. We use all this to create this sense of self. So the Buddha went through each of these as a way to kind of just to just really dissect that belief in self to see is that really true? 
So I'm going to briefly look at the rest of these aggregates using this, this first one as kind of this, this template. So from form, again, form is all physical bodies, probably the simplest way to think of it. That's how I talked about it in the homework. We can do the same thing looking at something else, seeing how you're, you look at something and you kind of sense of self forms around that. If you look more closely, where's that sense of self forming? Right? Not in form. So maybe it's in my emotions. Maybe it's in my thoughts. Maybe it's in my reactivity. So the next aggregate is that of feeling tone or Vedana. Now Vedana is interesting because it's, it's this cornerstone that we build all our reactivity out of. We build all our liking and disliking out of this cornerstone of Vedana. So Vedana is every, any moment's experience, any of the six senses, so including thinking, as soon as it arises, hearing a sound, seeing a sight, smelling something, tasting something, the mind, or it really, it's really our, our, I don't know what it is that does this. Something does this. It, it subscribes it as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Every sense, every, any point of contact has that. So, okay, that's, it's actually, that's a little subtle. But if you look closely, next time you feel reactive or kind of triggered by something, if you look closely, you see, oh, there's a kernel of Vedna that started that whole thing off. You know, I saw someone, let's say I'm giving a talk and someone yawns in the middle of the talk. And then there's that, okay, there's an unpleasant Vedna. And quickly there's this whole unpleasantness that arises from that. But that, just that basic moment is all that we come back to. And knowing that most moment, most first moment of contact. Now these arise based on our our history, our conditioning, and it really has this kind of fast track into self. I was thinking of it an analogy like a water slide. So we get to the top of the water slide and we we get on our little, you know, mat or whatever it is, or just sitting there on the water. That's the first moment of contact. But pretty quickly, we're slipping down that slope. We're down the water slide. That's going right into to clinging, to craving, wanting, not wanting, creating that sense of self. And there's been this big splash, right, at the end of that experience. So feeling tone is that just that very moment of it. Now, feeling tone is conditioned. If you've never meditated before and you heard this bell ring, you would maybe you would like the sound. It's a pleasant sound. Maybe it's annoying to you. But if you're meditating and it's a hard meditation, your body's tired, it's hurting, your mind is, you just want the meditation to be over as quickly as possible. You hear that bell. Is it a pleasant sound? Yeah. What if you're meditating and it just feels like you've never experienced this kind of peace before? There's this depth of stillness. And openness, it just feels like, wow, everything is just, I could sit here forever. Is the bell pleasant or unpleasant? You know, perhaps it's unpleasant, or maybe it's neutral in that moment. This is the interesting thing about Vedna, that it does change based on our, our history and our, our practice. I remember seeing this really, I was surprised to see this on a retreat once. I was working with mosquitoes. 
And mosquitoes, you know, have an affinity to my blood, so they tend to, to bite me. And so over the years, when I hear that high-pitched whine, there's a, a very unpleasant bait in that kind of get, go reactive right away, swat and all that. I thought, okay, for this retreat, I'm going to follow that precept of not causing harm. So I'm just going to not swat at these mosquitoes. And so I noticed that by not doing that, they actually, on walking meditation, they're just kind of cloud hovering behind me. And then I turn around and they would, okay, he's going this way now. And they're kind of a little sluggish in most of the day. So I just got to work with the sound, but not the actual experience of getting bit. But at first, not acting from the sound, there's just so much tension coming up because I was so conditioned to be react. I was down that water slide before I even knew it. But just by listening, <laughs> just listening to the, the sound of the mosquitoes, listening to how that, okay, coming back again and again, relaxing the reactivity. I was amazed by the end of that seven-day retreat that the sound arose without that reactivity. Somehow I had unconditioned that baden to being neutral. It wasn't quite pleasant, but at least it was neutral. Okay? Since it's kind of come back, but it's kind of showed me the power of our practice and how to unhook that vedna. And this is one of the saving graces of our practice. That's why mindfulness, the willingness to be present with, with life can really transform our, our, our seed of reactivity. Now, this comes in even more pertinently or more significantly, I should say, in, in society. You know, that's, as a white male, for example, I've been conditioned to have a certain bias toward people of color. It's a person of color arises or see that there's this bias that pops up, this Vedana arises. And so by working with racism and my own racism, I've been able to uncondition that so I can see through that, see through that. If I didn't see through it, my racism would just pop out, my privilege, my white privilege, my all those biases would come up. And this applies to any kind of way we project the sense of other. So it's it's a powerful thing to do is to learn to meet this moment's experience, to unhook it. And really what we're unhooking is these aspects of selfing around it. So the Buddha described Vedana as these water bubbles, like a raindrop hitting, creating a little bubble. Okay, so when you, next time it rains, just look at a puddle and see how quickly those pop and go away. And he described it that way in a really beautiful way because Vedana sometimes feels so strong and so driving to that sense of self, this power turbo driving into our reactivity. But if we actually sit with Vedana, actually notice, okay, let me just sit right with that unpleasantness or the pleasantness. You can see how fast it arises and passing away. Even when seeing the same thing experience of shoulder pain, I can feel there's a rising and pass that Vedana. It's like this, like hearing a sound like this bell. If we listen closely, there's these waves that come and go. I'm sure online you probably hear the waves even more as the zoom does. It's cutting in and out. Okay, same thing with Vedana. We look closely. We look closely in that and see how much it's changing. We start to kind of become disimpassioned in terms of the sense of self residing in our reactivity, residing in the, in the Vedana. So perception. So perception is 
the next aggregate. So this is created by our memory, our history, our conditioning, and all the way we perceive. We talked about racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, any way that we project on the world, perception is part of what's coming up, the way we form the world. I've used that example many times of uh, the way of language changes that perception, like the, the bridge in France with the Germans on one side of the river and the French on the other side. The French looking and saying, oh, this bridge is really powerful and, and majestic because French has feminine for a, a bridge. While the Germans looked at the grace and the beauty because in German, bridge is feminine. Just this basic perception change, how we see things. Everything we see carries the burden of what we know until we let it be itself again. This beautiful phrase from Samuel Green. So when we see something, we're really seeing from our perception, through our ideas. This is our label of something, the way we identify it. Again, has a tremendous utility in our life, but also has a tremendous potential for creating suffering in our lives, creating oppression in ourselves and others. And how often is that perception mistaken? Years ago, I was was doing the dedicated practitioner program at Spirit Rock. And if you've ever been to Spirit Rock, it's a beautiful facility, beautiful grounds, but they have ticks. And about 30% of those ticks carry Lyme disease. So there's, you know, there's, there's tension around seeing ticks in the, in, on people and in the hall. And one, one day where I was sitting, we're doing something and I, and someone near me saw what she thought was a tick. So they had these kind of special containers for getting insects because we're Buddhists. We're not going to harm anything. So, you know, and it was all this kind of thing. And then we looked closely and it was actually a piece of fuzz, right? A piece of fuzz. And so often we do that. We misperceive. So meditation is learning to take our perceptions much more lightly because it becomes this very powerful way we create that sense of self because we have an opinion about it. We have a label. We have the me in relationship. That's the bottom line. We create the me in relationship to that label. If you don't hold the label and we're holding something, kind of the immediacy of how it's arising, any of the sense gates, what happens to us? In that, we become much softer. We become less defined in that. We're loosening this aggregate of the self. The Buddha spoke of perception as a mirage. So mirages, you often see it in the summertime when you're driving on the freeway and completely dry pavement in the distance, it looks like there's this big puddle of water because of how light is changed by the heat waves. But we get close to it and it vanishes. So perception is pointing toward how it, it tricks us. It cha- you know makes us think differently than how things actually are. And we see this clearly. Perception s- stops being such a driver to that sense of self. And now the fourth aggregate of sankharas were also called volitional impulses. So this is kind of the one of the big significant drivers because we use this on all the other aggregates to create that sense of me. So this is when we have thoughts, opinions, emotions, memories, all this is kind of all that churning. 
particularly the choice to think, the choice to act. Because when something arises, like perception, we just, it's like it automatically pops up. Okay. Oh, that's a, that's a tick instead of a fuzz. Okay. It just pops up there. But what we do with that perception, that's when the sankaras come. We start to worry about it. We start to obsess over it. We start to long for it. That's the sankara power coming in. And it's, it's really like grooves we create in our, in our history. Past experiences, those actions of thought, of mind, of speech, of, of body, all those create these grooves that tend to make us go back to those. We tend to fall back into those actions. You can think of going back to the water slide example. It's like that becomes a lot of momentum of how we tend to react in the moment. How are we going to tend to? It's like, cause it's, you know how, have you noticed how it's hard to, to stop doing things you don't want to do? How it's hard to break habits, how it's a bit hard to maybe meditate every day. Cause we have these, this power, this momentum of our sankaras are constantly making us revert back. Think of that water slide as the gravity that's pulling us down that slope. So it takes a lot to try to shift out of that. That's why mindfulness is so helpful because it interjects this pause between what we see, what we sense, and our reaction to it. We slow down. When I teach retreats, one of my practices I like to, to offer is when people hear the outside temple bell bringing them back from walking meditation is to physically pause, internally pause. When you think of meditation retreat, you know, you should just be pretty much present all the time, but those who have been a retreat know that the mind can still kind of be active. But just that act of physically pausing teaches us how to pause in daily life. Viktor Frankl is, is said to have, is credited credit to this phrase that between the stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So that's the power of that. So these volitional impulses have the very powerful. And so we start to pause the momentum of that. We start to slow that down. And as we do that, this is really starts, the sense of self starts to drop away, starts to quiet down even more. You sometimes just get a note, you sometimes you can get a sense of how any moment you're always trying to do something with Right. There's, it's, it's unfortunately rare for us just to be simply abiding with the moment. That feels like there's absolutely nothing that needs to be done with this moment. Nothing needs to be changed, altered in myself or whatever I'm experiencing. That little bit of sense of, okay, something needs to be done. I need to get more of it. I need to check the time. I need to want this, not want it. That's Sankara's operating, the volitional impulses. So the Buddha's analogy for this is interesting because these feel really strong. This feels like this is really who I am, my thoughts, my beliefs, my emotions. But if we look closely, we see it actually, I can't find my sense of self. Do this, see this for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Next time you're feeling triggered or upset, just step back and say, okay, okay I'm really upset like about this. Where's the I who's upset? Where is it actually located? You're going to see perhaps it's located in 
the thoughts and beliefs, but that's kind of reinforcing the whole cycle of the, net, of the aggregates. It's kind of reinforcing that pattern, re-upping that strategy. But if you view yourself without relying on thoughts with this direct experience, you often be surprised that you can't find that sense of self. So Buddha said, look at a, a bamboo or a banana tree. So a bamboo, a banana tree, I'm sorry, is like, it's really a, a grass that's gotten really big. It's a part of the grass family. So if on the outside, you can feel it, it seems really solid. But if you're looking for the heartwood of it, and you cut into it, you actually find the center of it is empty. The center is empty. It's a beautiful image where we look at that sense of that's on cars, those choices, all that churning, all the emotionality seems so solid. But if you look in the right way, you actually see it's empty. Inherent. Doesn't mean it doesn't arise. Doesn't mean like we discount it. But we stop being so, we stop believing in that sense of self at the center. So this it transforms how we are in the world. Instead of me taking this so personally, it's like I realize, well, that, that sense of hurt came up. That sense of grief came up. That sense of desire came up. But it's not pointing back to that sense of self. And so then there's much more fluidity in how I meet it, how I tend to it. Final aggregate of consciousness. Well, consciousness is, it's a subtle one because it's really the, some say it's like the container which is holding this moment's experience. Now the Buddha looked at the six sense gates, so all the normal five and also mental, cognitive as, as uh, sense gates, sense doors. And that's where we often think is that's where I am. That's who I am holding this, feeling this, sensing this, smelling this. But again, looking, okay, where's that sense of me? So the analogy that the Buddha used for this was a magician doing a sleight of hand. Now it misdirects. The trick seems magical. That's how the that consciousness works. It says, look, you're here. Now you're here. So I was on a retreat recently, and I was really interested in looking at these aggregates. And with the momentum of the retreat, there's a lot of steadiness, clear seeing, and just noticing that sense of uh, where's that sankara shrine? That's that impulse of wanting you to do something with the moment. Where's the consciousness shine? Where's the, the sense of self? Where am I placing the sense of self in each of these? It's interesting how that, I just tend to flip-flop between consciousness and sankaras. It's like one or the other would leave. So, but I was seeing it and releasing. And at some point I said, okay, what is watching all this? What is actually observing all this? Who, what is observing consciousness? What is observing these aggregate or these, um, volitional impulses? What's it feeling tone? memory, perception, what's actually perceiving all that? In that kind of inquiry, you start to get a sense that there's something beyond all the aggregates is actually holding that perception. This is something that we can't really put into words. There's a vastness, there's a stillness, and yet a fullness. It's like it encompasses everything and all things. 
that sense of, of you can't be located. And this is ultimately what the practice, the direction of practice is learning to see through this narrow perception of self and how contracted it is. Next time you notice that you're suffering, notice how there's a sense of you who's suffering, a sense of I who's suffering. I mean, that's, it's, the Buddha clearly said, origination of dukkha is the sense of self, believing in that sense of self, the five clinging aggregates. The cessation of that suffering is the release of that suffering. So the Buddha's invitation that worked some 2,600 years and since that day, that time to this day, is like we have this, we have our laboratory of our minds, of our bodies, of our reactions, our perceptions, pleasant, unpleasant, the Vedana. All these things, we can look and say, okay, where is that sense of me actually located? Is it really as solid as I take it to be? So it's an alive practice you can actually open to. And in seeing through that, you might discover there's something much faster that's still present, that's still there. Something much larger than this narrow sense of self. All right, so let's sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle. Okay. So let's see if there's any questions. Actually, let me talk about the homework. So online, you can still hear me? Yeah, cutting out just a little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Most of we Okay, the five aggregates. So hopefully online, you're able to get those. I, I sent those to you, right? Yeah. And then here in the room, hopefully there's enough copies. So this is a subtle homework. It's, you know, it really points to engaging around this topic in your own life. So there's an assumption of self at the center of our experiences, our thoughts, our emotions, our senses. So starting right there, just notice that assumption of self. Next time you're feeling something, tasting something, just step back and say, I, you know, just highlight that sense of you who's having that experience. Right? You, that assumption is always there. But just kind of let that pop up a little bit. Let that be seen. Now, so it's a relative truth to that sense of self. So now, the Dharma practice points to the underlying illusion of that self. So looking at these five aggregates, which I listed, start to notice how that sense of self arises in relationship to. Now, if you relax that sense of, of the thinking and doing around any, any of the aggregates, so any impulse to do something around it, that's the sankharas. The sense of thinking about it is also sankharas. What happens to that sense of, sense of self? Is it still as intact as you thought it was? Can you actually locate it? Can you actually say, okay, Tim, I found it. It's, in, it's right between these two points. And it never changes. It's right here. right? Oh, it's right here in my heart. Right? See if you can find a sense of self which is a non-changing location. Now, if you don't, what does that mean about you? 
how does that define who and what you are? How does that change your perception, your underlying assumptions of yourself in the world? Now, if you really do this exercise, don't be concerned if you get a little freaked out, meaning that you're going to realize, wow, this, I've kind of based my life on this assumption, which I can see isn't as true or is maybe not completely true as I thought it was. So it becomes disorienting or a little disconcerting at first until we relax into the peace of that. All right. So that's the homework. And next week we'll have a, a recap talk, you know, a chance for you to explore this in small groups and the questions and answers. And now speaking of questions and answers, see if there's any questions in the room. I think um, I'm just going to have to repeat the questions because our normal system won't work so well. I guess we could actually give people my phone. Any questions um, online? I'll be able to hear them. Okay, how about here in person? Any questions? Is it completely clear or completely confusing? I can never tell. (laughs) There's no questions. No. It's a lot. Yeah, there's, yeah, Kamen was trying to wrap, wrap someone's head around it. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a, there's a lot of stuff there. So just take one piece of it, take something like the body and explore that. And the basic assumption is we, we, we're always saying, okay, this is my body. This is who I am. This is what I am. Just see, is that really true? If you really look closely, if you're able to see that the thoughts around something don't mean that's who I am. Even the thoughts around something. You can take each one of these and kind of explore it. Yes. So the comment was around um, the body was helpful to go into a lot of detail because by the end there was at least there was some kind of kernel you could grasp onto. Okay, that can blend. Here's a simple way to practice it. When you start to set each, when you practice each day, sit down and just kind of notice, okay, where am I? You know, can I get a sense of me sitting? My sense of my body, my mind, all that. And then at the end of the, the meditation, when you end it, just have that same inquiry. And you might notice that sense of you is not so distinct. It's not so strong. I think a helpful way to notice is the sense of self. There's many different ways it shows up. You know, there's subtle ways, very, you know, kind of right close, very close to perception ways. And there's very gross, obvious, dramatic ways it shows up. Sometimes you can notice how that sense of self in the dramatic ways is like, wow, someone said something to me. I just got so charged and triggered by that. Just step back and notice, well, that's a sense of self forming in a strong way. And notice how when someone else says something and maybe you're really happy, there's a whole different sense of self. Which sense of self are you? The happy one or the sad one? Are you the one that we connect the dots between those? Right. So that kind of shows a little bit of the rising and passing away. Because in reality, the sense of self is always arising and passing away many times in a day, many times in an hour. If we learn to look closely and then 
the more subtle ways to see it, as I kind of pointed to in this, these aggregates exploration, is you start to notice, like sometimes you can say, okay, where's the person watching this, watching this breath? Okay, I can kind of see where is that located? Okay, but if you look, if you're seeing something that's seeing something, that means you're outside of that, right? You can't, you know, if you're actually, it's like, here's my eyes. I can't see myself behind me. But if I can see myself behind me, then I'm not located there. But then what's watching that? It just gets more and more subtle until it, it gets to this point where it's, you can see really this, this kind of really subtle tension. And then there's the question of whether you can surrender and let go of that. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. Emily. Sure. So the, the question was around uh, Vedna, the feeling tone, and you know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And I use the example of the hearing the bell and that, you know, it's really that because of how we're sitting in our experience, it kind of primes us to hear that ba- the, the bell sound as pleasant. Okay. So it's not, if you look at dependent origination, it kind of really beautifully articulates how sound, ex- any experience, sound, hearing, sight, smell, touch, thought doesn't arise in a neutral environment. It's really, we were kind of already predisposed to sense it in a particular way. That makes sense. Like the mosquito example, I was predisposed to hearing that as unpleasant. So if you want the bell to ring, you're primed to hear it as a pleasant. If you're primed, if you're more in a, in a steady meditation or it's really deep meditation, I said that you might hear it as, as unpleasant ending, but I kind of changed, I kind of, I, I changed when I was saying it actually, because I realized if you're really in that kind of a state, it doesn't matter if the bell rings or doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a neutral experience. So neutral is, a, is it's, this is a really interesting uh, point of exploration, is that we can, um, neutral usually are things we just don't pay attention to. Like just, if you look around the room, you're going to, some things are going to catch your eyes like, oh, that's a pleasant sight. That's an unpleasant sight. But there's a whole lot of stuff that just kind of neutrals, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Our attention tends to gloss over that. Now, as our meditation, as our practice deepens, there's this transformation that we start to neutral actually becomes something which is, we actually see that's pleasant. Well, I don't know. I say that it's, it's, <laughs> It's peaceful. Let's say it's peaceful to have a neutral thing arise because we were not, we're not moving toward it or away from it. It's just right there. So it's kind of a factor of equanimity that starts to grow. So subjectively, it starts to feel like there's more and more things which are neutral. Like, okay, that's just a neutral experience. I'm not really perceiving it as being pleasant or unpleasant. Does that make sense more? It's not about the No. I used to think that neutral. Yes, yeah, neutral being um, used to think that was unconscious, and it's, it's in some ways, it can be if we're just kind of caught in like I need something pleasant to stimulate me, I need something unpleasant to stimulate me, 
something that's neutral doesn't stimulate me. So I'm kind of unconscious to it. So in that way, yeah, there is that. That's what it's kind of leads to more delusion, if you will. If pleasant leads to craving and greed, if unpleasant leads to aversion and, and, and hatred, neutral can lead to delusion. But there's a way it really transforms through our practice that it becomes this, this, this way of abiding with the moment's experience. Does that make sense now? Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Yes, we're going to get to, um, let's go her. I saw her verse and we'll go to you next. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So to paraphrase it for those online, basically the, the question is around how does the exploration of, of non-self and the aggregates relate to decision-making? Because we have, decisions come up and we might get really reactive to and if we're always just going into okay this is not self it's not me you know how to make a decision and especially the fast pace we can't like say okay i'll get back to you in five days after i've really seen through this completely (laughs) that's sometimes my strategy if i avoid emails eventually they become obsolete and i can just say oh well so there's a couple ways i want to answer that one is in practice, you know, for a long time, we're just going to be nor- using our normal mode of doing this. And you might notice, okay, take one of those, those emails, you know, respond the best you can, but then practice with it. Practice how it created that sense of self-work. So that gives you the luxury to start to see through it, to see into it more and more clearly. And once you, and it really, it just takes, it just takes seeing through it clearly a few times till it starts to transform that underlying assumption. Now, once that you start to see through it, then that assumption, when you get, when you get triggered by something, it actually helps you make much better decisions in my experience is I can see, Oh, wow, I got really triggered by that. I got really reactive. I'm taking that personally. And I can see all that is ultimately empty. And so I can be much more clear headed in how I respond, much more compassionate in how I respond. So actually, it really does benefit everything in our, in those really nitty, nitty gritty things in our life. And yet, in the fast pace, it's sometimes hard to feel that. A simple way to, to do it is just to, in the midst of that, is just to feel the body as you, as you get that reaction. Just, just acknowledge, oh, that, that triggered something in me. I feel that contraction. I feel that, that anger. Okay. Maybe I should try not to email from that anger. You know, just pause, you know, maybe write a draft. And, you know, a great technique is to, as I do this all the time, is when I feel charged about an email, is I take away the, the, the what do you call it, the recipient or the person I'm sending it to, take that off so it's blank, just in case I mess up and accidentally send it. Uh, and I draft it, and then I just kind of sit with it. And I just feel, go back to it maybe in a few minutes or I ask someone you know i sometimes ask twerry so i think i feel kind of reactive to you can you check this email and she says yeah you'll change it this way or ask my wife to get that feedback and then that allows you to be much more skillful and it creates less waves that you have to clean up afterwards does that help yeah it's, it's a very critical question and you had a question thanks for comment um 
minutes an hour myself, but I, I kept closing up. Um, and your voice is so gentle and it's very quiet tonight. And so I was sort of reflecting on this and then I started to drift off and, and uh, I had the experience of losing myself, right? Mm. And, uh, I realized it was shocking way self came flooding back. And so I was sort of kind of noting this as I was really I guess what I noticed is that when the body self, my sense of self is connected, I guess, to my body experience. So when my body experience stops or ceases, I think my self begins to as well. I I don't know if I'm just, but is sleep a part of the absence of self? All right, so um, try to paraphrase that. So the question was around feeling drowsy and falling asleep. And does a sense of self rely on being conscious? Does it rely on being aware of the body or, or not? And, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because I think it's certainly if we're completely unconscious, yeah, the sense of self isn't there because there's not that that mechanism of things coming. You know, we're not sensing anything. The Buddha would often you'd often do conditionality that if it's if there's this, then this will arise. If this doesn't arise, then this won't arise. So if you're not able to make any sense contact because you're knocked out or asleep, there's not going to be that arising. Right? So the sense of self needs something to kind of bounce off of. But you know, we can be dreaming. And then there's a sense of self. I mean, we can have experiences like, oh, I'm having this experience and that experience in our dreams. So in that case, consciousness is coming forth in some way. And the sense of self is active in that in that dream. And also just to, to comment that, you know, you, you're noticing all that, noticing that when you fell asleep and you came back, you could feel that sense of you coming up that, you know, whatever it was, embarrassment or I got to wish I was awake or wish his voice wasn't so soothing or whatever it might be. But you, you're kind of sensing, you're seeing all that. And that's really the bottom line is can we use life to learn from? And, you know, we all have, you know, conditions that sometimes we're, we're just sleepy, worn out. Does it? <laughs> yeah. Is there something about when you know, someone yawns or falls asleep, it kind of draws your eyes. So, <laughs> but don't, don't feel, don't feel bad about it. It's perfectly fine. I've fallen asleep during Dharma talks too. <laughs> Just watch out when I fall asleep during my own talk. <laughs> Please wake me up. All right. Yes, go ahead. So, the question is if the sense of self evaporates when we fall asleep what's the role of the subconscious well the subconscious i mean we can you know not to get into there's so many different ways psychological systems look at that but i'm just talking off the my off the cuff here around that so subconscious you know certainly more more dreaming subconscious tends to kind of work things out so I think the sense of self and the subconscious, you know, they're, they're still kind of operating there in, in some degree. And in our, 
daily life, the subconscious is often where a lot of these things I talked about reside. I mean, our perception, we, we don't even realize we have this inherent bias that we're putting on someone else or on ourselves. We don't even realize that we're conditioned to hear a bell a certain way. We just say, oh, I got really reactive. We don't even notice that, that that's actually, that's all unconscious. We don't realize all our past choices in history are, part, are often un- unconscious. And so, in fact, you can say that most of our, unfortunately, most of our, our waking hours were kind of unconscious. We're just kind of going from one reaction to another. That's why the Buddha was called the awakened one. He woke out of that, that illusion. You know, so part of it is the illusion of self. But the self and unconsciousness, I think they really are intertwined because so much of what we maintains it is the unconscious beliefs and unconscious you know, momentum of our, our past history. Does that, does that address your question or your follow-up? Yeah. I mean, it seems like, it seems like the, the journey that's sort of gently before us, um, the subconscious into the conscious. So the journey is to, to paraphrase, is to gently force the subconscious into the conscious. You know, yeah, I don't know if I would use the word force. It's more of kind of seeing into it. And this is, you know, meditation, like I'm teaching an intro to meditation class. And it's often like around the the third, fourth week, you see people kind of drop off. Because what's happening is we're kind of, we're listening deeply to ourselves. We're learning to listen to our, our full experience. We're just feeling the body, feeling emotions. And it's kind of like an invitation for the unconscious to kind of, okay, you're listening. Let me bring forth what's unresolved, what's what's uncompleted. You go on a retreat, you know, often the dreams get really bad, very vivid. There's a question on this month long someone asked, a written thing says, what's up with all these technicolor, surround sound, mature audience only dreams, you know, because our, our dreams do get really vivid, you know, very strong. And that's a subconscious kind of working it out. So it's kind of, it's like, that's just the nature of practice is that you start to become more and more aware because you feel yourself struggling and you realize the superficial thing I can't solve by changing these conditions. It's something deeper, something unconscious. So it's, it's, it's definitely brings unconscious to awake, being wakeful with it. But the forcing of it's much more of that, just the direction it goes. Thank you. All right. Anyone online? All right. Back here in the person. Anyone? Yes. So when you're uh, like sitting on the cushion and you're meditating, um, you know, you're, part of that can be sort of trying to be in the moment and then you're kind of observing what thoughts might appear, past, hunger. Is that an exercise in non-self? Because all of a sudden you're not really absorbed or identified by the event and the fault of the volition how does that fit into this? I still, I've got a self when I'm doing that, but yeah. what's the, how does that relate to this discussion? 
the question is around during formal meditation practice and you're just observing things arising and you're, you know, not getting caught in reactivity and you're, you know, how does that relate to these aggregates and, and a sense of self? Because it still, still seems like there's a sense of self who's watching, right? So it's, it's an important question. Um, there's a few ways I can answer this. Sometimes I pause because there's, I can just see that there's, um, there's an early way to practice it and there's a de- old, later way to practice it and how that answer changes. But the central thing is that we are practicing seeing through the nature of self you know, and, and learning how to see experience without doing anything with it, being mindful of it, without being reactive or judging it, just observing it. That's really quiet down the sense of self. The self isn't so active there. It's not, it was less active than if you were judging for your, right? So, so that's an important distinction. You're kind of moving that trajectory. The tricky thing is that sometimes we just stay at that level of the witness who's observing. That witness is still the sense of self, right? So I, I kind of started talking about we can notice the, the obvious manifestations of self, but ultimately it's about that, that deep perspective, that deep assumption falling away. That sense of the awareness is no longer located here in me. It's not, it doesn't have any locus of, of, of place. It's like, the, it's a vastness of awareness. And that's, that's ultimately what the practice is aiming to do. So sometimes we forget to go that, that way. We don't extrapolate by being relaxed with this reactivity. We also want to learn to be reactive, relaxed with that sense of you as the meditator. So you, so you said that like earlier practice, like meditative practice. Yes. Like one is like fitness. And you may still feel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. I am witness. That's right. Yeah. So what's the later? Later's that. So the follow up question is the, the sense of, of early practice is that witness being there. That's really helpful to have a witness observing. Well, what's the later practice? What's the, the more, whatever you want to call it, further down the road practice? It's, it's a, it's a sublime abiding with the moment's experience. That's not, you're not located. You can't find the sense of you in any of that. It just doesn't arise. There's simply presence knowing experience. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's a uh-huh. So it's yeah, it's 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 very subtle, but you just kind of start to to become curious about that. Curious that where's that sense of me? And does that sense of me have to always be there? I kind of pointed to that with noticing the witness. Okay, what's noticing the witness? What's noticing what's noticing the witness? You know, so what's noticing that you keep backing up to the point where you, you can't force it anymore. That's what I was talking about with the aggregates is noticing there's a sense of self rising. There's passing. There's a rising. There's passing. What is watching all that's pointing to something that really gets beyond words. I think that I'm witnessing myself. <laughs> yeah. Noticing or noticing. You're noticing. That's right. Yeah. You're, so you're noticing and noticing. 
yeah, it can it, it can it can be endless because we can just kind of have a more subtle sense of self, a more subtle sense of self, more and more subtle. But eventually, you realize, okay, there's this this whole mechanism can actually fall away. All right. Did you have a quick question? Yeah. Um, going back to what we started talking about, trying to figure out where I would feel that, and being a full practice this week and see where I feel it, and it's going to be different places. You know, but I would think first it would come into your head. That's where you would think you would feel it because, oh, but, um, or being maybe a lot in here. Um, but if I'm angry, I'm going to feel it here. <laughs> so if, when people come back to you and they say where they feel it, I think I'm missing something. <laughs> so the question is around practicing this week, like where the sense of self lies in the different aggregates and the different, like if you're, if you're mentally stimulated versus emotionally versus angry, it's a different place that right. shows up. So it's important to distinguish between where you feel the energy in the body, where you feel like the, the charge, those are the sensations. We're talking about where's that identity? Where's that sense of you located? And it's a trick question that you may not actually find that. Right? And, and you probably won't, you know, it's going to be always changing too, even if you find, because sometimes you can say, okay, there's a sense of me. I'm really, Here's the pain of what I'm feeling. That's who I am. Okay. But if I really, if I, if I'm not holding the thoughts around it, I'm actually seeing, okay, the actual sensations of hurt or anger. If I hold it in a light way, the sense of me is it, not so connected to that. But if I keep saying, yeah, I'm really upset that they said that. Yeah. The sense of self is right there. So this is the kind of the blindness that the Buddha is pointing to to see through. Now we keep re- we reinforce we create the sense of self constantly. It's our it's our biggest habit. You're welcome. All right, so thank you again for your patience with our technical difficulties, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. <laughs>